Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this opportunity to dive into your word. We thank you for gathering us in this digital community, a reflection of the community that we have at our wonderful parish of St. Timothy's and those who join us uh, from our wider Catholic family. And we just pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of us watching live or later in the ways we most need it. Bless us in the ways that we are searching, seeking questions or guidance, seeking answers to our questions, whatever it may be, Lord, we just, we, we lay this time at your feet. We allow it to be yours. We allow our lives to be yours. And we pray that the words of sacred scripture would challenge us tonight, convict us, comfort us, uh, enlighten us, and do whatever it is you have in store for each one of us. We pray tonight, or whenever we're listening to this, that we Allow any distractions or worries or anxieties to be removed from our hearts and our minds so that we could fully enter into this time and that you would just allow your will to be done with this time and with our lives. Bless me, illuminate me as I'm um, seeking to deliver this study and allow it to fall on ears that are open, hearts that are open and ready to receive your word. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Independence Day. Happy Fourth of July. And uh, happy Monday. It is time for our Bible study, our weekly Bible study. And this week, we have a great gospel passage in Luke chapter 10. And we'll be in verses 25 through 37. And that is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 15th Sunday in Ordinary Time in Cycle C. As always, we're going to read through this passage twice. The first time through, I want you to just paint a picture for what is being said here. So reminder, this is the part of Luke where Jesus is on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he's journeying through several different towns, some of which are in the area of Samaria uh, and throughout southern Galilee, uh, so he can get on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill the mission he's come to perform, which is to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And throughout the beginning of this, he's in this extended teaching on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him. And we've been hearing that over the past several weeks. And this is a continuation of what we heard last week with a little bit um, of a skip in between, but last week's gospel on the commissioning of the 70 or 72 disciples and their return. Uh, And so he offers a little bit of praise to God the Father He talks about some of the privileges of discipleship, and then we get into this greatest commandment, which leads into the parable of the Good Samaritan, a parable that is unique to the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to paint this scene in your mind as if you're hearing it for the very first time, Jesus speaking to the apostles and many other disciples while they're on the road, and him really trying to instruct them in what it means to truly follow him. And in this instance, uh, him being questioned by a scholar of the law, a scribe. 
And so let us pray and read through Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. There was a scholar of the law who stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He said in reply, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But because he wished to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man fell victim to robbers as he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. Likewise, a Levite came to the place, and when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. But a Samaritan traveler who came upon him was moved with compassion at the sight. He approached the victim, poured oil and wine over his wounds, and bandaged them. Then he lifted him up on his own animal, took him to an inn, and cared for him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper with the instruction, Take care of him. If you spend more than what I have given you, I shall repay you on my way back. Which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? He answered, the one who treated him with mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So again, very familiar passages that you've heard probably several times, if not hundreds of times throughout the course of your life. Um, but I believe every time we dive into these familiar passages that the Lord wants to speak something new to us. And so I encourage you as we read the second time through to listen with fresh ears as if you've never heard this before, or maybe with just that image in mind you have of that particular parable or the scene as Jesus is teaching. And pay attention if there's any particular word or phrase that stands out to you, maybe a detail that strikes you that you've never noticed before, something that sparks a stream of consciousness of thought, something unique to you. Maybe it relates to something going on in your own life or things you've been praying about. Whatever it might be, pay attention to those things that uniquely stand out to you and begin to reflect on them in prayer. Ask God, why is this standing out? What are you trying to say directly to me through this particular detail? What are you compelling me to do? As we read through the second time, listen for those things. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. There was a scholar of the law who stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The scholar said in reply, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But because he wished to justify himself, the scholar said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man fell victim to robbers as he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, but when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. Likewise, a Levite came to that place, and when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. But a Samaritan traveler who came upon him was moved with compassion at the sight. 
He approached the victim, poured oil and wine over his wounds, and bandaged them. Then he lifted him up on his own animal, took him to an inn, and cared for him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper with the instruction, Take care of him. If you spend more than what I have given you, I shall repay you on my way back. Which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? The scholar answered, The one who treated him with mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. So I want you to just take a short moment to reflect on the things that stood out to you uh, and write any questions or reflections in the live chat. Uh, if you have any questions specifically, put them in the comments. Uh, and if you're watching this later, feel free to share any of that in the comments, what stood out to you and why, what questions that you have so we can make sure that they are answered. If you're watching this with other people and you'd like to share, um, if you're watching this live, you probably don't have the opportunity to pause, so maybe wait until the end of the study to do that. But if you're watching this later, just the recording, feel free to pause, share with the people who are around you what stood out to you and why, and then resume this um, after this short pause. So just take a few moments to reflect on those things, any questions that you have, and leave them in the live chat and in the, in the comments. So, as we dive into this gospel for this upcoming Sunday, some important reminders of where we are again in the Gospel of Luke. A reminder, this is a big section on discipleship, and this is an extension of what it means to follow Jesus. However, this is not Jesus teaching his disciples directly. He's allowing for this question from a scholar of the law. And so we read in the beginning of this, as we break this down, that there was a scholar of the law who stood up to test him and said, now, a scholar of the law might also be referred to as a scribe. This was someone who was a um, religious uh, lawyer of the legalistic side of Judaism, someone who studied the Torah very well, who knew the Jewish law, and it was their job to kind of police whether or not people were accurately reflecting, following, or interpreting the Torah. Now, rabbis, there was a lot of room for interpretation for gray areas of different situations, but when it came to the letter of the law, the scribes were the ones who knew the law well and were the ones who enforced uh, whether it was being followed or accurately being taught. And so the scholar um, tests Jesus by asking a question. This was a common disciple and rabbinical kind of exchange at the time that you always learned and taught through the asking of questions. And it almost created this kind of competition, you know, like, who can I out-question? Who can I, um, you know, seek if they have the right interpretation or the right knowledge? And so who knows what this scholar's intention was? He could have had very good intentions, 
Um, it seems from some of the details in the text, to my interpretation, that he was trying to justify some of his own behavior or kind of one-up Jesus um, to test him. But the idea that he was testing him was not uh, necessarily negative. This was a very common thing uh, to ask of rabbis. And this question that he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life or what is written in the law? Um, you know, this is something that was commonly asked of rabbis. You know, can you summarize the entire law in one? And it was often a common practice that rabbis needed to have such a good, succinct summary of this that they would often give their answer to this type of question standing on one leg. Because if you went too long, then it provide, provided an imbalanced summary and you would fall off balance because you can only balance for so long. And so that was kind of a, a little cultural detail there about this time. Um, what's interesting is that this uh, section of the greatest commandment appears also in Matthew and in Mark, uh, specifically in Matthew 22, verse 34, and in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And in both of these instances, the scholar of the law, come, or the scribe, same kind of synonymous term, comes to Jesus and asks this question, and Jesus directly answers it. He doesn't give the scribe the opportunity to answer. However, here in Luke, he does. Uh, now, is that does that matter in terms of what really happened? I mean, because of this questioning exchange, um, you know, when you're the one asking questions, you are the one who's in control. And so what Jesus does is he assumes control by asking the question back. And that's something that would probably have been a very common uh, rabbinical tactic in teaching, you know, especially not that Jesus didn't know the answer, but, you know, I can imagine sometimes when people have asked me questions and I didn't know the answer, uh, sometimes to give myself a little moment to think or to get deeper context or a way in which I can answer the question, I might ask a clarifying or follow-up question to kind of stay in control of that debate, argument, or situation, you know? And it's a very good tactic whenever we're in a certain conversation about faith. You don't need to have all of the answers. Most people believe certain things because they heard about it from someone they knew or they saw it on the news, but they didn't do all of the investigation into the background, the history, the actual statistics and studies, the actual ethics behind it. And so you can simply ask questions like, well, where did you hear that? Uh, why do you think that's a good thing to believe? Where is the evidence for that? Uh, do you know that's true? You know, questions like that can really help in these different situations. And so <clears throat> regardless of how this actually played out, in this particular instance, I think Luke, uh, Luke is trying to dictate that Jesus is always the one who is in control. He's very intentional. Remember, this section is about Jesus journeying intentionally on the way to Jerusalem. Luke presenting a version of Jesus that he knows exactly what he is doing. Yes, he tries to present Jesus in his fullest humanity, but he's also showing that he is the Son of God, completely in control, completely intentional in everything that he is doing. Um, the scholar of the law asks this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now recognize there's already a problem. There's a flaw in the logic here because he's asking the wrong question because we cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. You know, we believe that we are saved by faith and works as Catholics, but that doesn't mean that we can do anything to achieve salvation. We believe that we are solely offered the ability to be saved by the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that if we accept that free gift of his sacrifice for our sins that he gave us on the cross and in rising from the dead, if we can accept that and surrender ourselves to it, that is the only means by which we can be saved. 
However, then our salvation becomes dependent on how we live up to the response to what Jesus taught, how we live up to that commitment we're making back to Jesus. And so at that point, we are judged according to our works as well. So we need to be performing good works, making sure we're doing things that align with the mission of mercy and of love that Jesus came to share with us. Otherwise, we are uh, saying a false yes. We are we have an empty faith if we're not backing it up by actions. And we'll see kind of how that plays out here in this passage. Um, and so what Jesus is really trying to, to uh, communicate here is that love, real authentic love, which means an action, you're acting, you're sacrificing actively when you're authentically loving a person, is greater than legalism, is greater than checking the box, is greater than going through the motions. And so oftentimes we might get in a position where we think like, oh yeah, I'm really close to God. I'm, I'm doing really well in my spiritual life because I go to church, I uh, put money in the collection basket, I go to confession, I pray the rosary, I do all of these spiritual things. But if at the foundation and center of that is not a wholehearted relationship of love with the Lord and that's lived out through our love of others, then it's hollow, it's empty. It's as if we are miming or masking our way through a Christian life, and it's not really taking root. And so this whole dialogue here, Jesus is kind of trying to communicate that, that doing the faith, acting on the faith, doing the truth is better than knowing it. You can know what the law is, and clearly the scholar does. You can know it, but the better thing is to put it into action. I've heard it compared this way, that a composer can write an entire symphony down to the last note. And once that last note is written, the symphony is done. It's complete. However, the orchestra still needs to show up to play it in order for you to hear it. The same thing is true with the mission and teachings of Jesus. It's complete. God gave us, Jesus told us everything that we needed to know to follow him. However, we still need to show up and do it, or else there is something lacking in the mission of Christ that's being seeking to be lived out through you and me. We need to put it into action. Or in other words, we need to make the beautiful music of living a life of following Jesus. Otherwise, it's just notes on a page. Otherwise, it's just words in a Bible not being lived out. So we cannot have this action-oriented faith. You'll remember the same question is asked of the rich young man. Um, the rich young man happens later in Luke chapter 18, also in Matthew 19 and in Mark chapter 10, where a rich young man comes and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he has the same exchange about following the commandments, loving the Lord with all your heart. But then he says, go and do this, go and sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Go actually put it into action. And the rich young man goes away sad because he has many possessions. And so we have a similar kind of dialogue here. That it's not about action, or not about simply what you know and simply going through the motions. It's about action rooted in authentic love for God and for others. So we continue. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Remember at this time, there wasn't a centralized hierarchy. I mean, yes, we have the Sanhedrin, you have people who interpret the law, but there was no kind of weight to the law. Yes, we have the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, those were considered pretty important, but there's 613 laws in Judaism that are listed in the Torah. 
laws about civic life, about ritual life and worship and liturgy, laws about morality. And it was difficult to determine which ones are more important than others, which ones supersede the others. And so this was a common question being asked. And so the scholar says in reply in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, what the scholar of the law does here is something very clever. He quotes the Old Testament, the Torah. He quotes a particular prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and it has the heading here of the greatest commandment. So this is something that was prayed every morning and every evening by faithful Jews every day. Jesus would have prayed this twice a day growing up. This prayer was also written on tiny little scrolls, and it was uh, hung along wristbands or along uh, hanging boxes from the garments of rabbis called phylacteries. And it was also put in little doorposts on the entryway to everyone's home called mezuzahs. And you would touch that and you would recite it or remember it every time you entered or left your house. Rabbis wore them as a living sign that we are meant to embody this particular prayer above all the others. And so that is in Deuteronomy 6, it's called the Shema, which comes from the first word hear or listen. That's Shema in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with, all your, with your whole heart and with your whole being and with your whole strength. And it continues to some other prayers, and there's some other prayers that were said as part of the daily prayers as well, but talks about, you know, say them when you get up, when you lie down, when you are away, when you are at home, bind them on your arm as a sign, uh, let them be a pendant on your forehead, write them on your doorposts, and um, on your gates. And so this, as I said, was something that was very important to the Jewish people. So the scholar says that, but he adds a particular phrase here. Now you'll see this differently listed in Matthew and Mark and in Luke and in the Shema in Deuteronomy. You'll see different words. So in Matthew, it's with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. In Mark, it's with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. In, in Luke, it's with your heart, your being, your strength, and your mind. And so, which is true? And in the Shema, it's different. It's just heart, soul, and being. Heart, no, heart, being, and strength, excuse me. And so they're all kind of different words. Does it really matter? What do they all mean? Well, some of them are synonyms. Some of them are words that like made more sense later to use synonymously. But essentially, each gospel account in the Shema itself is getting at, you need to love God with everything, every part of you. Doesn't matter how many different versions of, of those parts that we list. All of you needs to be brought to the table and to be offered in loving service of the Lord. So your heart, your emotions, the things that you feel, uh, your desires, your soul, which is your vitality, your consciousness, your, uh, your strength, or your being, your sense of your power, your, your drive, your free will, and your mind, your intelligence, your planning, the things that you, know, you, you learn or know or do in life, all of those things should be devoted to the Lord. And then he adds something that's not in the Shema, but is also in the Torah. This is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So part of one of these laws. So the scholar combines these two things very, very well. And again, as I said, in the other Gospels, it's Jesus who does it um, pretty tactfully. But this became a really great summary of what it meant to love God, to actually be a faithful disciple of Jesus. This is uh, in Galatians, reiterated in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so we have these three loves at play here, love of God, love of neighbor, love of self. And you may have heard it said that in order to experience joy, that you need to love those things, J-O-Y, in their proper order. Jesus first for J, O, others second, and Y, yourself third. Uh, And oftentimes, we can disproportionately arrange those. We might not really love others that much, or we might not love ourselves that much and prioritize things that we need to do to stay healthy and spiritually uh, awake and enlivened, mind, body, and soul. Uh, Maybe we don't spend enough time in prayer with the Lord uh, or in service to others. And so this is a really great litmus test for you and I. Looking at our life, like what are all the parts of my life? Are all of them centered around the Lord? Have I invited God into every relationship, every responsibility, every event, whatever it might be in my life? And how am I doing in my love of the Lord and my love of others and my love of myself? And if you did something maybe uh, in every one of those areas daily or weekly as you're able, and you really got to kind of think about those, or you could think about like mind, body, and soul. Do you do something every single day to stimulate and create a healthy um, self by doing something to stimulate your mind uh, through, you know, um, some kind of puzzle or challenging problem or stimulating your mind by reading or, you know, consuming something interesting, something that you enjoy, your body through physical exercise and being well, stretching, whatever it might be, and your soul doing the spiritual things that we're called to do and praying to the Lord, being in relationship with Him and the things that, you know, make us sacramentally connected to Him. So, This, again, a great litmus test for what it is to be a disciple. But remember, it needs to be lived out. It's just not knowing the law. It's actually putting it into practice, which is what we're going to see play out when we hear the following parable. Um, But Jesus, he replies to him. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This idea that the law was a source of life goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This is in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Keep then my statutes and decrees, for the person who carries them out will find life through them. I am the Lord. And again, in uh, Proverbs 19, verse 16, those who keep commands keep their lives, but those who despise these ways will die. The Bible is all about these examples and stories of people throughout salvation history who show that either obedience leads to abundance or disobedience leads to destruction. And it's not that God brings that about actively in our life. It's that he's always seeking to bless us and give us good things. He always wants to give us abundance. But if we turn away from them, then we naturally receive the consequences of our actions, which is destruction. Separation from God is destruction. It cannot be abundant. It is completely devoid of abundance. And so if we sin, we reap the consequences of those sins. And God, wanting to respect our free will, allows us to have those consequences. And so he tries to remind us time and time again, these laws I've given you, there are not rules to oppress you, but they are uh, sources of life to set you free and to allow you to become and live into the life that I promised you, to have the best, most abundant life possible. These things are not thou shalt not, even though some of them are written that way, but they are thou shalt do this in order to be free in some capacity or way, in order to experience life Um, as it is. I mean, today as I'm recording this, it's a feast of St. Irenaeus who said, the glory of God is a man fully alive, a human being fully alive. We are fully alive when we obey and follow the teachings of the Lord. That's who we were created to be, people who do that. Um, 
Jesus, he says in John 10, 10, I came that you will have, so that you would have life and have it with abundance. That is his promise to us. And the source of that for the Jewish people was the law. So hence this whole uh, situation and conversation with the scholar and Jesus. Now in verse 29, it gets interesting. This, this parable of the Good Samaritan only happens in the Gospel of Luke. It's only in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is sometimes nicknamed the Gospel to the Gentiles, and this is one of those examples. And we also have more parables in Luke than in any other Gospel. And so this is an example of that because a lot of what is in this parable would have been very shocking. Matthew would not have written this to a Jewish audience. Um, you know, Mark doesn't really include barely any parables. Uh, and so it just wasn't part of the way that he wanted. He just wanted the eyewitness testimonies of people about what Jesus did. Uh, and so Luke is really incorporating a lot of these teachings that he was able to collect doing his own eyewitness testimony investigations and really wants to communicate how there's this kind of universal mission of Jesus Christ. Even though he came to the Jewish people, it extends to all of us, which we then see play out in Acts of the Apostles and the rest of the New Testament. And so because he wished to justify himself, in other translations it says because he wanted to vindicate himself, the scholar says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, why does he ask this? Does he ask this because he genuinely wants to know, like, who, who am I supposed to serve? Maybe. It seems from that kind of nuance to vindicate himself uh, that he's trying to ask this to say, in a sense, like, I'm already doing this, right? Or to basically know, well, who isn't my neighbor? Who don't I have to serve? Because for most Jews, including the authoritative teachers at this time, your neighbors were your fellow Jews. That was what they believed. In fact, some rabbis at this time taught that it was illegal to help a Gentile woman during childbirth because the only result would be that you would bring another Gentile into the world. That's kind of the harsh nature that some rabbis took to some interpretations of the law. Now, that law is not in Scripture. It's something that a rabbi chose to interpret or lay on top of the existing law. But what the law does say in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34 it says, you shall treat the alien who resides with you no differently than the natives born among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. And so it's clear here from all the way back to the Torah, who is our neighbor? Everyone is our neighbor. But we had fallen into this kind of um, religious um, uh, stratification at this time where Jews only saw uh, you know, as, as viable or as, I guess, um, proper, their fellow Jews, and that they were not to associate with heretics or anyone else because they kind of probably applied those laws about being unclean or ritually impure to associating with them. And it didn't reflect well on them because it implied that they maybe weren't living out the fullness of the law. And so though that may have been uh, innocent in its desire to try and be, or well-intentioned maybe, to try and stay faithful to the law, it created just this kind of insider-outsider mentality uh, for the Jewish people, especially the leaders at this time, something that Jesus constantly is criticizing and calling into question. And so, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, and he replies with this story. Now, there is a similar story to this uh, of something that actually happened in the Old Testament. This is from 2 Chronicles chapter 28. I know we probably don't read Chronicles very often, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 5 to 15, you can read this story about how the Samaritans actually rescue some Judeans, some people of the southern kingdom of Judah, because remember, Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel were at war, and they were in, in civil disputes, and so Samaritans were kind of part of the center area of Israel, 
uh, and I think this was actually a war with a foreign nation. Um, and the, the Judeans, they lose. And so some, the Samaritans, they rescue them and um, they attend to them in a very similar way. So I'm going to read you uh, the, the last verse of this in verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 28. It says, Then the men just named proceeded to help the captives, the Judeans. All of them who were naked, they clothed from the spoils. They clothed them, put sandals on their feet, gave them food and drink, anointed them, which would have been with oil. And all who were weak, they set on donkeys, on animals. They brought them to Jericho, the city of Palms, the city that the traveler is going to in our story, to their kinfolk. Then they returned to Samaria. So we have here, there's already an Old Testament precedent for this, that even when the Judeans were completely against the Samaritans and there was this religious division going back, you know, to almost a thousand years before Jesus, that there was this instance where the Samaritans came and helped the Judeans who were in trouble. And so Jesus, in a sense, is reminding them of this, that these kind of barriers should not be there. And so many of the details about this particular parable are similar to that actual story that happened. So something to keep in mind as we read. A man fell victim to robbers. We don't know who this man was. We don't know anything about him other than he's a traveler. He's not very smart because he's traveling by himself. Um, and he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this was a very treacherous path. It was a commonly traversed path um, because Jerusalem was a pilgrimage site and needed to get to and from there for pilgrimages. But um, Jerusalem is about 2,300 feet above sea level. And so you're always hearing people going up to Jerusalem. In fact, there's a series of psalms in the book of Psalms that are called the Song of Ascents, that you, songs of ascents, that you pray these particular psalms when you're climbing your way up, ascending your way up to Jerusalem for different pilgrimage feasts. And so uh, Jerusalem, 2,300 feet up. Jericho is 18 miles away, but it's also 770 feet below sea level. So you're going down 3,000 feet in elevation through these jagged, uh, rocky paths uh, on which there are a lot of different narrow ways where robbers can hide, where people can be um, suddenly um, ganged up on by, you know, brigands or, you know, um, I can't remember the, the other word I'm trying to think of, but uh, people who want to rob them, you know, take their possessions or whatever it might be. And so you would always travel in groups. So this person not necessarily doing a very smart thing here. Um, in fact, this particular, in the fifth century, St. Jerome um, nicknamed this pathway the red or the bloody way, because it was still a very dangerous place. And I think all the way up until the 20th century, there are even accounts of this being a, a dangerous place where people are often robbed or accosted on different journeys. And that might still be the case today. So nonetheless, very treacherous journey. Uh, something that is very likely to happen if you travel alone on that path happens. And so they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. Now recognize here, this is a direct uh, representation of Jesus, okay? That he is beaten, he's stripped naked, and he's left dead on the cross. You could kind of tongue-in-cheek say half dead because he does raise from the dead three days later. But this is meant, I think, to be a direct representation of Jesus. And you might recall the passage in Matthew 25 of the judgment of the nations where Jesus is, you know, talking about the end of time and he's there judging those on his right and his left. And he says to one side, you know, come into the kingdom for when I was hungry, uh, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And they're like, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you food or thirsty and give you drink? And he said, whatever, whatever you did to these least brothers of mine, you did to me. And to those who didn't, he cast them off into the fires, into hell. That's the kind of 
judgment that we can await, not based on the things that we knew, the things, the truths that we learned based on what we did with them, how we acted upon them. So Jesus here painting a very uh, clear picture of his, of what's going to happen to him and the different, not surprise, religious leaders who kind of are uh, not the instigators, but who do not see it as something that needs their attention. So it continues. Uh, oh, also something to say here about Jesus, uh, the, the person here being left half dead. Um, in Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers chapter 19, it specifies that if, if someone comes upon a dead body or a body they believe to be dead and they have any interaction with it, that they're uh, considered unclean for seven days. And so that would have been something that was probably a concern for the priest and the Levite, not necessarily knowing, um, you know, who, um, what, what, what was happening here, if this person was dead or not, and uh, not really wanting to burden themselves. Not that it's an excuse, but we see first in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side, not wanting to be near him. Likewise, a Levite came to that place. And when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. So who are these two people? A priest... A uh, priest and a Levite were both people from the um, heritage of the tribe of Levi. And from that tribe of Levi came the priests. Uh, they also needed to often have their lineage traced to Aaron, the brother of Moses. And so if they were in the line of Aaron and also in the tribe of Levi, they could become priests. But all of the other Levites, their role simply by being a member of that tribe was that they were kind of consecrated to the service of the temple. So they would help the priests in all of their different duties uh, to, you know, help with worship, to make sacrifices and things like that. So there were many different rules for the provision of priests and Levites and for their own kind of holiness and purity. And so these two groups of people were considered uh, people who would be the leaders, the people to look to, the models of example of what it was like to be a good neighbor. And yet, this is how they act. Now, there might be some reasons for this. The priest, uh, he, it's very uh, difficult for him to be deemed ritually impure because now he can't make sacrifices for people. And the priests were the mediators between the people and God. That's a pretty serious role. However, he doesn't know he's dead. Um, they might think that this was a trap. You know, often this was something that would happen. Robbers would kind of leave one person as if they were injured, rely on the hospitality of others. And then when they were vulnerable, the rest of the robbers would come out upon them. It also might be like, I just, I don't really want to bother myself. I'm, I'm on this very difficult path. Do I have to carry this person? You know, where am I going to carry them? Do I have the time to do that? You know, um, maybe the Levite even saw the priest pass by him and looked to him as a leader and just did the same thing. It shows you the importance of having good leaders, people who are good examples of the faith, because it reflects what others might do. Are you and I good examples on, uh, regarding how we treat our neighbor? You know, if someone only saw, let's say, how you interact with people in traffic, would they know that you were a Christian? If someone only saw how you deal with people on the customer support line whenever you have to call those numbers, would they know that you were a Christian? If someone only saw how you interact with people in the service industry when your order gets wrong or things start taking a little too long for comfort, would they still know you were a Christian? Those are very difficult circumstances where we need to remember that Christianity or Catholicism is not something we can turn on and off. It's not a set of things that we just know and believe. It's a certain way in which we love, a way in which we put those beliefs into action. So these two model groups of people, not necessarily the best uh, examples that they should be. Um, instead, they pass by. Um, so we continue, verse 33, but a Samaritan traveler who came upon him was moved with compassion at the sight. 
Okay, remember, Samaritans and Jews shared nothing in common. Samaritan was a nickname also for people that that uh, Jews thought were heretical, that they thought were heretics. In fact, Jesus is accused of being a Samaritan in John chapter 8, verse 48. They say like, so tell us, are, are you a Samaritan because of the things that you're saying? They don't believe it. They think he's committing heresy. Um, and remember, Jesus is highlighting the Samaritan here, but just a chapter ago in chapter 9, verse 53, the Samaritans rejected him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And yet he denounces and rebukes the disciples who are saying, should we call down fire upon them in judgment? No. No. Just because those particular people might have been inhospitable, we don't lose sight of our hospitality, of our need to love other people. And we don't forget things like in the Old Testament, where the Samaritans helped the Judeans in their time of need. And so a Samaritan traveler who came upon him moved with compassion. That word for compassion, esplanktheniste. It's a hard word to say in Greek, and I'm probably saying it really wrong. But it translates to being moved to the bowels with compassion for someone like move to your guts. People believe that the seat of your emotions at this time was in your gut, uh, not in your heart. The heart was more considered kind of the seat of the mind or the soul, like where where uh, decisions were made um, and things like that. And so um, moved kind of to, to the bowels, very kind of visceral uh, interpretation. This is a word that's used when Jesus cries out at Lazarus's tomb. Um, compassion, another word for compassion in Hebrew is raham or rahamim, which uh, also translates to womb. You know, the willingness to kind of, you know, also the, you know, being moved in your bowels, actually a woman being moved in that part of her body by having a baby inside of her, that kind of nature of compassion being one that a woman would have for a child in the womb. You know, willing to endure suffering for this person, willing to endure the trials of labor pains, and not only that, the sacrifices in having to raise this child. Um, all of that at play in that word, and that is the emotions that the Samaritan, who would otherwise be seen as an other, an outsider, someone who's rejected, that is how he responds to this person in need. Verse 34, he approached the victim, poured oil and wine over his wounds, and bandaged them. Oil and wine, both things that were actually used in worship, offerings to God. But oil is also used in anointings. We see that in James chapter 5. We see that in that story of um, 2 Chronicles 28. Wine used in uh, meals and table fellowship, in uh, sharing intimacy. In fact, for a husband to propose to a bride at this time would involve him going over to the home of this young woman with his entire family and community and extending across the table her a, a glass of wine. And if she drank it, she accepted. So it was an invit invitation into intimacy. Also think about the worship, you know, the feast of Passover and the sharing of wine and cups and our own Catholic interpretation of the Eucharistic wine, that the wine becomes the body, uh, the blood of Jesus. And so an invitation into that intimate relationship, caring for them. Wine also probably an antiseptic that was commonly used. These two things put together were kind of like the Vicks vapor rub of their time. You just use oil and wine, you know, pretty much to fix everything. So, um, but this is what happens. Uh, he bandages his wounds. Then he lifted him up on his own animal, just like they did in Second Chronicles, and took him to an inn and cared for him. What's interesting in his own interpretation of this, St. John Chrysostom, who lived um, about uh, in the fourth century, he said that the inn in this story is the church, that we come to the church to be healed, for our wounds to be bandaged, for others to care for us. We don't come to the church, this is now my interpretation upon this, we don't come to the church just because it's, it's something, some place that we learn. It's a place we go to be healed. You may have heard this phrase before that the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. That's what we're getting at here. 
And if we're not actively recognizing our own role as attendings, as nurses and doctors in that hospital, not only when we're here, but out in the world, just like if an EMT sees a car accident, they're legally required to stop and see if they need assistance. That's kind of our role here. We are the Samaritan. If we see someone in need, to feel as though we are like legally compelled and required to stop and see if someone needs assistance, to serve them. Are we actively looking for those people? Or are you in your car seeing that person with a sign and actively trying not to make eye contact? Okay, even just the acknowledgement, a smile, like recognizing you're here, you're a human being, even if you have nothing to give them, is an extension of mercy and an extension of love to another person. Conversation even, even if you have nothing to offer. So we continue. Verse 35, the next day he took out two silver coins. This actually in the translation is two denarii, meaning a silver coin is a denarii at this time. One denarii was a day's wages. So two days wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper with the instruction, take care of him. If you spend more than what I've given you, I shall repay you on my way back. Uh, the original translation, I shall repay you when I return or on my return. So he guarantees that he'll be back. Think of the trust that had to happen here. We don't know where this innkeeper was. He sees a Samaritan come in. The Samaritan must have been particularly trustworthy or honest because otherwise probably would have had no business interactions with him whatsoever. So it shows to the character of this person that when we really authentically love in the way that God is calling us to, all the other descriptors or things about us, all the other barriers that we might have between one another, they crumble. And that we all just look at each other through the lens of love, through the eyes of love. Verse 36, Jesus asks, which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? Now, the scholar answers, he says this, the one who treated him with mercy. Recognize he can't even say that it was the Samaritan, because that would just be too much for him. So I imagine he said this through clenched teeth, like the one who treated him with mercy. Or, or maybe he thinks that the priest and the Levite treated him with mercy, and he's trying to just like not admit the real teaching here. But Jesus says to him, based on what he said back, treating others with mercy, go and do likewise. Think about what he's basically telling the scholar. He's saying, go be like a Samaritan. How like gut-wrenching that would have been to hear, especially as someone who thinks that they are probably, you know, um, the buzz, you know, they're, they're hot stuff when it comes to knowing the law and following it, to be told that you need to go and be like a Pharisee. Uh, not a Pharisee, a Samaritan. That would have been a rough thing for a scholar of the law to hear, who constantly judged people, maybe even ruled out that uh, accusation of others being Samaritans because they thought they were heretical. To now be accused yourself by your own words that you need to go and do likewise. So again, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must go and do what the Samaritan did. It's not about what you know. It's not about being able to quote the Torah, even though he answers correctly. What that means, what the answer means for us is not just a piece of knowledge. It is a way of life that we're being invited into. It's a way of entering into the mission of Jesus Christ to love others as Jesus Christ loves us. That is what it means to be a Christian. I'm reminded of earlier in this passage on discipleship, this section, where um, an argument is raised about who is the greatest in the kingdom. In chapter 9, this starts in verse 46. Uh, Jesus says in verse 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is the greatest. And he says elsewhere, he who receives the kingdom of God like a child 
That's what we're called to do, receive the kingdom of God like a child. Isn't it interesting that children don't look at people and think, oh, that person's a Republican, that person's a Democrat, or that person is this or that. You know, they don't see those different types of things. They just see people. And it's very easy for them to be honest, to love, to be kind, to help, to serve. When do we lose that? Have you lost that? Do you need to regain it a little bit? I think we could all do better at this, myself included. And so this week, as we're reminded and we reflect upon these words of the greatest commandment, how we love God, love others, and seek to love ourselves well, recognize that that is not about information that we know, but our faith, the things that we believe, compel us to action. And in the end, the entrance exam for heaven is not going to be a theological test about your knowledge. It's going to be a resume of actions. What did you do based on your capability and the things that you knew that were revealed to you that you were supposed to do? How did you live out the faith according to the mission of Jesus Christ, according to what you heard from the Lord? That is how we will be tested. That is how we will be judged. So how do you measure up today in this moment in what you're doing for your mind, body, and soul and how you're serving God, serving others, and serving yourself? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this time and your word. Compel us to follow you more faithfully in all that we do, to invest in ourselves each day, mind, body, and soul, so that we can love you wholeheartedly, so that we can be rooted in you and rooted in the version of ourselves that we were created to live as. Help us to serve others well. Do not just have an empty faith, no matter how much we learn or know, or believe, an empty faith is one that is not acted upon. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to look for those who are in need, to seek them out, to seek to love them as you love us, and even to love those who are difficult to love, those who we separate ourselves from or make accusations against, just as the Jews did to Samaritans, people of a different ideology, religion, political party, opinion, viewpoint, whatever it might be that we would seek to love and serve them first, to live the mission of Jesus before we try and convince someone else of the teachings of it. Because people don't care what we know until they know that we care. So help us to care well for all that we encounter this week, especially those who are difficult to love. And help us to recognize all the ways that we are difficult to love. And thank you, Lord, for loving us nonetheless. Thank you for the gift of our country and our freedom on this Independence Day and all that you continue to bless us with in your abundance. We pray all of these things in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.